everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod here in Vegas at Summer League with Malcolm Brogdon, the newest or one of the newest members of the Boston Celtics. Malcolm, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be talking to you today. Are, are you used to that yet, Boston Celtics? Not yet. Um, you know, I actually go up there, uh, complete my physical, do my press conference in a few days. So I'm yet to actually see the city and uh, visit it as a Boston Celtic. There was a lot of trade discussion about you over I don't know, a pretty significant period of time. There were a lot of teams that I remember Indiana was talking with. The day the trade happened felt like it came out of nowhere to me about a half an hour before the deal was done was when I first heard about it. How about for you? Was Boston a team and a destination that had been on your radar at all? No. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of people say I'd be the perfect fit there, um, that they need a guy like me with my skill set. But Boston was never one of the teams that, you know, showed interest early on. It was there were really a host of about five or six other teams that were consistent, that were constantly in the news and, you know, on all the articles that people knew were, were showing a lot of interest. So, you know, that's Boston was not one of the teams. It's an interesting process, I think, for a player, Malcolm, right? When, you know, the organization will keep you abreast on some level, right? Your agent will keep you abreast on some level. But you're still at the end. You're at the mercy of where they send you. You're under contract for a few more years. You, you really don't have say. You don't. Um, you know, of course you can ask out. Of course you can, I guess, show you're behind and, and, you know, handle things the way you want. But at the end of the day, you, that doesn't work for everybody. And a guy like me, um, I haven't been an all-star. I still have a lot more to prove in this league. I got to handle things the right way. You know, just sort of wait for my opportunity. If it's to stay in Indiana, if it's to leave, um, it's really you're really up to you know the team has a leverage at all times in terms of keeping you or trading you when you went to indiana malcolm you go in the sign and trade essentially with milwaukee they could have done the offer sheet herb simon it's interesting just didn't believe in offer sheets they did the deal with the bucks and you go there at a time when the team was still trying to win was in the playoffs had a pretty good core of guys you were adding to that it obviously changed while you were there. And when you see it changing and you see something that feels like it's headed toward a rebuild, but you're in the prime of your career, you're a veteran, what's the conversation then that goes on with you, the organization, your agent about, okay, what's next? Because it doesn't feel like I fit on your timeline anymore. For sure. You know, you're, you're constantly trying to figure out the direction of a team, a team that's not having a lot of success and, you know, making deep runs in the playoffs. Those are the teams that are constantly retooling and making changes to their roster often at the trade deadline during the summer, you know, whenever they can. Um, and that's the point we got to in Indiana, especially my second year. We started making changes e even with the coaching staff. I, I had three different coaches there um, because I think our front office was just trying to figure out what was going to work for that group. And then, you know, this past year we, we made some big trades. We traded our all-star in Domas and – I think that really changed the landscape of the Pacers organization and it sort of blew things up. I feel like that was the the real big sign um, of a, you know, a complete rebuild. And, you know, I wasn't one of the guys that fit their timeline. I'm 29. They brought in a point guard in Tyrese Halliburton, who's a great young player. He's going to be a great pro, you know, for a long time. And that's the guy they're going to invest in. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, it's a business. And I had multiple conversations with the Pacers. This, this is a business, um, and I understand. I just want to know the direction. And, you know, they made the best decisions for, the, for themselves. And 
you know, they sent me to a contender. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity to be with Boston, and I'm very appreciative of how Indiana handled it. What were the first conversations for you with Brad Stevens, Ime Adoka, about Boston, about why they were bringing you in, and, and sort of the role they expected you to fill? I had a conversation with Brad Stevens uh, briefly, briefly on, on the phone. Uh, we didn't really get into any specifics. Uh, we actually were just uh, talking about me going to on my Africa trip. I was supposed to be in Africa right now with my foundation and whether or not I was going to go, when I was going to come up for the press conference. We didn't get into the details of things. Um, and then with, with Ime, we really just texted. Um, we didn't. We didn't spend any time talking on the phone, but Brad, I think, did have a conversation with my agent and, you know, talked about me coming into Boston and embracing a, a six-man role. If I wanted to come to Boston, that'd be one of the things I needed to embrace. And for me, you know, I've, I've, I've made a lot of money. I've won a lot in Milwaukee. I won some in Indiana, um, but I really want to get back to winning on a high level. I want to win a championship. So whatever I can sacrifice to get back to that championship level, I'm willing to do it and compete. When you leave Milwaukee and you know when you're in Milwaukee that it's probably on the cusp as Giannis is ascending, that you're going to have chances to compete for championships and the other players there and you go to Indiana and you see what's happening in Milwaukee. Is there a part of you that wonders, did I miss out on my chance in my career to be a part of a championship team? Am I ever going to get a chance to do that? Absolutely. I think I'd be lying if I said I. that's not something that I thought about it's not something that burns me and that I you know get worked up about but it is something that's like man like I really could have had an opportunity at that but at the time I made the best decision for myself for my family uh for what I thought was the best decision for my career and you know I live by that it was you know this is all God's timing and you know I don't believe in coincidence these everything happens for a reason and I came to Indiana and it you know it has worked for me and now I'm gonna move on to my next destination you look at that Boston team and you see a team in the finals that was certainly that, that is on the cusp. Typically, a team like Boston with a payroll like Boston with a core of guys, they're probably not trying to trade any. It, it's unusual that they can add a player like you to a team like that. You know, obviously they gave up, you know, a first round pick, and I think that's what Indiana was interested in. But when you're watching Boston in the finals, you probably don't imagine that's a team that can add me, right? Absolutely. You know, for myself, I feel like I'm a I'm a high level player in the NBA. I'm, I feel like I'm very re, uh, well respected around the league. And, you know, I feel like it would it would take a lot for a team like that to get me, especially if they already have most of the pieces and they already have a high payroll. But I think it really is a testament to the Boston Celtics and how much they want to win. They're willing to spend. They're willing to possibly have a guy that they're paying 20 million dollars a year, come off the bench as a six man and try to help him win a championship. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand slams, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECT-TV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. 
Malcolm, I know you pay close attention to this, and you, as your VP in the Players Association, and actually that might be a record now in Boston. There's you, Jalen Brown, Grant Williams, three VPs. I don't know if there's ever been. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't think so, yeah. It will be a well-informed Celtic locker Absolutely. room. Absolutely. Absolutely. On CBA issues. You look at team building in the league. From when you got in the league, a second-round pick who becomes rookie of the year, to now, what looks different to you about how team building goes in the NBA, not just at the highest level of winning championships, but at the lower levels for teams who are, like Indiana, checking out and saying, we're going to start a rebuild. We don't want to be stuck in the middle. What what looks feels different about how teams are putting groups together? Uh, you know, I think a lot of it is about how teams are putting groups together, but I think a lot of it is about the power that the players have. I think it's something beautiful to see guys pick to – to play where they want to play and pick where they're going to be happy. You know, it's a double-edged sword because you see what we have now. It's sort of, you know, a few teams have monopolized the NBA and, you know, are, are the teams you can rely on because they have so many superstars, because they have so many all-stars that are, you know, wanting to play together year after year. Um, and that are, you know, essentially a lot of the time we've seen moving from team to team together. So, you know, I think it's done – a lot of good for the NBA, a little bit of bad, because I think the wealth does need to be shared. I think there are small market teams that need superstars that need to be revamped, um, that, that, that need some of that wealth. But then again, it's, as I said, double-edged sword, the, the, these owners have to pay as well. They have to be willing to pay these max contracts. they got to be willing to pay to play at a high level to have that success. You know, you mentioned, we talk about Boston, that they add, you know, luxury tax, and I think the numbers are on $30 million. Um, additional with you, they paid sixty million total luxury tax since over two decades. So you see them jump in, and you see Golden State deep in luxury tax, and 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 certainly other teams who are trying to win a championship so for the most part showing you've got to be pretty deep into it. And you've got small market teams saying we can't do that. We can't spend that way. That we're using almost all of our revenue on player salaries versus you know, the more profitable big market teams that have, whether it's their local TV deals, arena, suites, who just have more resources than us. And it feels like, and you're going to be a part of this and are a part of this, the collective bargaining talks with the NBA, that that's a big theme for them. Can there be adjustments to luxury tax, salary cap that allow for maybe less massive spending at the top and, and a little bit more of a an ability for smaller market teams have access to more players where golden state they could run their payroll and luxury tax to 500 almost 500 million dollars how do you see that is that good for the league is it better to have more players spread out more teams that people want to watch on tv i mean you could look at our network's ratings and know like you guys see who we have on all the time it's because they get ratings and other teams aren't that that's even that that might even be a benefit for the players there's a push and pull there yeah, you know, I think it is a benefit for the players. I think it gives us the ultimate power and freedom to play exactly where we want um, in whatever city we want with whoever we want. But, you know, I think it can be somewhat, you know, harmful to the league to not have teams like Indiana, uh, Portland, um, you know, Sacramento, these small market teams sometimes not have a chance to get those guys uh, because the players have so much power. But, again, like, I, you know, like I've stated before, it, a lot of that falls on the owners. To, to be willing to, to, to pay, um, to have those Kevin Durant's, to have those um, you know, Damian Lillard's on your team. There's this discussion about trade requests and how the league can address that in players, in, in, the, in the talks with the players. 
mean, my thought is whether it's Kevin Durant with four years left on his deal or, or, or another player with multiple years who asks out, team can say no. They can say you're under contract. Absolutely. We're not moving you. The other 28 teams don't have to start calling and you know making offers that if the league wants to honor, if they want players to honor contracts, if they want to honor each other's contracts and not be tampering with everybody's, because the same guys arguing about this isn't fair are tampering with players trying to get them to ask for trades. I guess I have a hard time understanding how you can legislate trade requests, not asking out, because the team simply can say, we're not trading you. What am I missing? It's so hard. Um, I think this is one of the more recent concerning topics and, and problems in the NBA because players do have the leverage to ask out. You know, depending on how big your name is, how much money you're making, how much of a star you are, you have leverage at this point over the team to say, look, I want to leave. And if you don't, I'll either sit out or I'll embarrass you to the point to where you have to get rid of me. Um, and we've seen that with certain players. I won't say any names. We've seen that. Guys that want to get out so bad that they do that. Um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm a guy that believes in playing the game, you know, respecting the game. And, and when you sign a contract with the team, you're obligated. You need to play. You need to play. That's how I feel. Um, it, it's part of showing up to work and doing your job every day. But if you want out, there are ways to handle that. There, there are professional ways to handle that. But you show up to work every day. It's, it's a respect for yourself. It's a respect for, you know, your team, your teammates, um, that staff. So it's definitely a sticky subject, but um, at the end of the day, I think it comes down to respect and, you know, the team approaching players with respect. And when players have wishes to leave and teams aren't doing right by them, them allowing them to leave. I think that's an issue that needs to be addressed as well, because it's not just the players saying, I want out. There are things that are done that players don't talk about, that teams are doing to them and how they're treating them that, you know, never, never hits the news. It's never tweeted about. So it's, 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 double, it's double-sided, but it, it's definitely something to, to continue to watch as, it, as players gain more power and, um, you know, it becomes a bigger issue. Being part of the executive committee on the Players Association, you, you get a front-row seat to these issues. You hear it from the owners, how they see it, and you hear it from your, your guys and what they want. Why do you take that role on? It's a lot of meetings. You're going to a meeting, I think, when we're done here today. You've got a Players Association meeting. And especially when you get into collective bargaining, it's a lot of time. Absolutely. Um, what, what, why do you do it? Ah, uh, man. Um, I care about the, the state of the game. Um, for me, I'm a person that whatever I touch in life, I want to leave it better than I found it. And that's how I feel about the NBA. That's how I feel about the game. Um, that's how I feel about these young guys and this next generation coming behind me. If the next generation is dealing with the same issues in the CBA, with owners, with teams, the same you know, the exact same issues that we are dealing with today, we didn't do our job. We did, we, we did them a disservice. So I think it's on us to take this serious and for the union to get better and better with every president from Chris to CJ. CJ should be better than Chris. CJ should have been watching and learning from his mistakes and improving. Every year it should get better. Um, and we need to continue to improve. That's why I take the job. It's not about me. It's not about clout. And I think we have a committee full of guys that believe that as well, that it's about bettering the state of the game. Malcolm, I want to go back to the, the Celtics for a minute. You look at that, how you fit into that team, a playmaker, which was certainly something they wanted to address this offseason, but you defend your position. You look at that team, and there's no one you can go at. Like I was, you talk to other teams, and you know every team there's someone you can run plays at defensively. That player doesn't exist 
necessarily in Boston's top five, six, seven. Like, as you kind of been thinking about that team after you watched them play against them, it feels like there's a runway there to be pretty good for a pretty through the prime of your career at the very least. Absolutely. You know, I think I have maybe three more years in my prime. And, you know, I've gone to a team where I think I fit their timeline. Um, I think I'm right in the middle of it. And I fit on the court physically, my, my skill set, my game, everything fits. Um, defensively, I think we're going to – they were the best defensive team in the NBA. I think the gap only widens now, now that I'm on the team. I don't think it could be even a better fit. They weren't on my radar early on, but for them to come in at the – at the very end and it to happen that quick within you know 24 36 hours like it did it's, it's fortuitous and I'm, i was meant to be there when was the first you heard of the deal the day before i got traded um brad stevens had called the pacers and called my agent and had expressed a lot of interest that we had we had no clue was there uh you know the day before so and then the, you know we we were in serious talks that day by the time, uh, you know, it got to, you know, 12 o'clock at night before I went to bed, the deal was going to be done at any minute. And then it happened the next morning. Was there a place, let's say, leading up to the draft, was there a place you had started to mentally prepare yourself to go to? said, I think this is where it's going to be, and I'm mentally preparing for somewhere. Yeah, you know, I thought it was going to be Washington. Yeah, I did too. Um, I heard the Pacers – Loved the idea of having that 10th pick, mm-hmm. of having two picks in the lottery. And I knew Washington needed a good veteran point guard to pair with Brad Beal. And I knew I fit his timeline. I knew everything fit. And I'm, you know, basically homegrown in, in D.C., a lot of roots, University of Virginia, family there. It would have been a little too perfect. As we got close to the draft that day, my agent called and said, it's probably not going to happen. Washington looks like they're going in a different direction and going a little bit younger, they might actually, you know, use that 10th pick and not trade it like everybody had been saying they were going to. So by the time we got to the draft that night, I realized I was not going to go to Washington, um, which wasn't crushing, but, it, you know, it was, you know, sort of a change of mindset now. You have a perspective on how the league works from your role of the Players Association to even organizationally. You saw the decision Milwaukee made about you, and they probably made more of a decision based on how they projected your you physically going forward. Do we want to invest the money up against what, what maybe what our concerns might be on health or whatever? It wasn't that they didn't want you there. It wasn't that they didn't value you. You right. were homegrown. You were you were their player. You, they drafted you. you. You had a great relationship, partnership with their players. They make a decision. Indiana does. You go to Boston now. You see how organizations make decisions. Mm-hmm. You see how it works. You see sort of all the factors involved. I think people naturally think if you wanted, you might head into management after your career. You might want to be a GM or a team president or maybe coach. Sort of as you're hitting 30 and hitting that point in your career and you start to maybe think about what the next thing is, have these experiences made it like more or less likely that you'd want to stay in this sport when you're done? To be honest, these experiences haven't changed anything, more or less. Um, I'm not a guy that wants to coach. I, I think I could enjoy it, but being a coach, I think, might be more rigorous than being a player. Other than the actual physical demand of getting on the court every night, the strategizing, the amount of time you take game planning and preparing, and spending away from your family like players is brutal. Um, so that's not something I, I, I think I will ever do as coach. Uh, but being a president or being a GM, that could be something I consider. Still, it, it, it's very time-consuming. After my career, I feel like I've taken so much time away from my family, I'm really going to want to focus on 
my kids and just everything I have going on at home. So after my career, I doubt I'll be involved with basketball, but uh, there's a chance. There's a chance. What do the good coaches do in this league? The guys you've liked playing for, the guys you thought were the most effective? Like if somebody's interviewing for a head coaching job and they come to you and say, what do I need to know about being good at this job, commanding the respect of my players, building an environment that is conducive to winning? What, what do you tell that guy in this league? Be honest. That's the one thing I, I think is the common denominator between the best coach, the, the McMillans, the Carlisles, the best coaches I've had is they were honest. And even when it wasn't what you wanted to hear, even when it was constructive criticism, even when it was, you know, you, you, uh, you know, threw us out of our rhythm tonight because of your bad shots, because of your turnovers, whatever, because of your attitude, they were honest. They're always honest. I think a lot of coaches, they, they know they're dealing with grown men, but they, they maybe view us as, as college guys still, especially young teams. And they don't treat us as, as grown men. And I think that's part of the problem. You have to understand you're dealing with grown men that, you know, are playing for their livelihood, that have families at home. Be honest with them because they, we can take it. We can take the bad news and the good news. But we need honesty so we can make good decisions for our careers and our lives. Rick Carlisle good at that? He's excellent. He's probably the, blunt, best, the most blunt, direct coach I've ever had. I, um, I always told him from day one that, that was what I appreciated about him the most. And Carlisle, you know, sometimes didn't tell me exactly what I wanted to hear. Sometimes it was exactly what I didn't want to hear. But I could walk away from that conversation appreciating that he told me that. Give me an example of something that he told you you did not want to hear, but you walked away saying, well, I asked for the truth. Uh, I mean, even with Carlisle, you don't ever, you don't have to ask for the truth. He's a guy that will tell you. I mean, we would get in film sometimes. And he was a guy, he wouldn't go at me a lot, honestly. Um, but we'd get in film, and there were times where he would call me out, you know, and, and stuff that, you know, when you're the best player, one of the best players on the team, coaches will let it slide, you know. They, they won't say much to you. They'll let you sort of rock out and make your mistakes but not blow you up in front of the team. But he would. He didn't care um, at halftime. If I was the one making mistakes, if I was the one, uh, you know, with bad energy and sort of messing up the rhythm of the team in the first half, Carlisle was the one that would get on me at halftime and just call me out. And then we would move on because nothing was ever personal with him. Like, if it, if it feels personal, that's when, when a player actually starts to get upset and, you know, you see him emotional. Carlisle was just, you know, about business. You can tell he just wanted to win. And that's what, you know, I appreciated the most. It, that's a really good point about, and guys talk about it a lot, and I've heard coaches talk about it too, who are careful of where that line is from constructive, useful, necessary, criticism, coaching, evaluation of what they just saw versus it going into personal. Where's that line blur for you? Where does it cross? Salary? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very fine line. You know, I can say that there were times where it felt like Carlisle got personal with a few guys, and literally the next morning he would start the day off and apologize in front of the team. Like he was a guy that was constantly thinking about his actions, constantly thinking about how he was coaching us and how he was being perceived and heard, and he was always correcting himself. And, you know, it's an emotional sport. Everybody wants to win. There's a lot of money involved, so people really care. There are going to be times where it gets personal. That's actually just the sort of the fact of the matter. But for a coach or a player to be able to come back and apologize and, you know, admit where he was wrong, I think that's the key to it. You've seen in the league just the last couple of years – the emergence of more African-American coaches in this league, head coaches. 
and you saw the success Ime had in Boston, J.B. Bickerstaff in Cleveland as their roster improved, and he, you know, with that team, Jamal Mosley goes to Orlando in a rebuild, and, and, you know, we can go down those. Wes Unseld came in the league last year in Washington, and and now Darvin Hammond in L.A., who you played with in Milwaukee and know probably overdue for an opportunity. Almost was your coach in Indiana, pretty Mm -hmm. close. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, they didn't go that direction. But why is that important? Why does it make the league better? And you look at guys who've prepared, they've paid their dues, they've had success, and now you see them getting these opportunities. What what does that mean, I think, for players and for, for the good of the league? You know, I think, you know, one of the things you're hitting on is diversity is seeing, you know, uh, these black men get these head coaching opportunities that – hasn't happened these black men get these head coaching opportunities that hasn't happened you know since you know the the NBA was created so that for them to have this in this moment I think we're living in a time now where it's sort of the cool thing to to give black people opportunities right now and that's okay but now black black people African Americans we have to take advantage of this time and get in these positions and you know show people that we are actually overprepared and are going to do an excellent job we watched Emay in Boston overperform and outdo his expectations and we'll continue to see these coaches do that so I think it's amazing that these guys are getting these opportunities I think it's long overdue and I think you know we're going to continue to see more and more of it as they continue to do excellent jobs this is a lot of fun Malcolm and I know you're headed up to Boston now to go there and and uh you know get settled in get ready for um I had a training camp here this is going to be still more dominoes to drop this summer I think right and so and you're headed off to a players association meeting, which will be it's going to be a few interesting months with with the league, right? So, uh, but appreciate you taking the time, Malcolm. Always good to visit with you, and uh, uh, I know we will see you uh, we will see you in training camp in New England, man. Yes, sir. That sounds great. Thank you for having me, Walsh. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.